This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form, written by, performed by, and produced by Brad Lawrence. That's me, to quote Karina Longworth. Before we get started, one small note on the sound quality. I am not recording this in a studio. I am recording this in the tiny side room of my Brooklyn apartment during a pandemic. All around my apartment are the sounds of ambulance sirens because of the pandemic and children trying to get just a little bit of outdoor time on the concrete splotch that passes for a backyard in an apartment in Brooklyn. So, I have done my absolute best to soundproof against this as much as I can, but Brooklyn, pandemic, ambulances, children. For God's sake, think of the children. And do your best to enjoy what I think is a pretty good story, in spite of what may be some occasionally imperfect audio. Thank you. Maxine and the Planets Unknown, Episode 4, Chapters 6, 7, and 8. Chapter 6 The path before Maxine had turned suddenly steep. It wasn't plunged to your death steep, but for someone who had grown up on a series of level surfaces, it felt precarious. She found herself instinctually using the three points of contact rule and sliding on her butt using the palm of one hand as a drag and a rudder. Clothes were suddenly new again for Maxine. Each emigre had been issued an excursion suit for Planetfall. It had thermal regulator coils woven into the fabric, water reclamation pouches in the thighs, a pocket with three complementary protein bars, a small first aid kit in a built-in pack at the waist, a multi-tool in a pocket on the upper arm, and a transponder that would allow the survey satellites to relay her location back to the Contiki if she ever got lost. It was likely the single most useful piece of apparel hanging in her closet back in her room. Maxine had trotted out into the great unknown wearing a light nylon jacket, a pair of thin leggings, and a t-shirt that said firecracker on it, which she liked because she had never actually seen a firecracker, and that gave the entire ratty thing a kind of cool, vintagey vibe, as she had explained to Sumner when he had questioned whether or not it would survive one more wash cycle. The sneakers she was wearing did have excellent arch support, so you couldn't say she had gone out totally unprepared. But... Sliding on her keister down the bare path in the leggings now had her wondering if she was going to be the first great explorer to do the job with her ass in the breeze. She wasn't entirely sure what she had thought raw ground would be like, but she was pretty sure that softer had been among her assumptions. Maxine was keenly aware of the desire to express to someone that everything on an actual planet was weird. Dirt. Weird. Wild plant life. Weird. Wild life in general. Weird. Breezes. Weird. 
but it occurred to her now that it had not occurred to her when she was leaving the Contiki to find someone, anyone, to go with her. But who would she even have asked? She had no friends. She was friendly with everyone, but none of them were people she would turn to or trust. She did love Sumner. She loved him like the put-upon, uncertain, terrified-to-screw-it-up father figure he was trying so hard to be. But she was as removed from true closeness with any single person as the term father figure was more than a few steps removed from the word father. She was the sole orphan of the accident. There had been other people who had lost family, but no one besides Maxine, had lost everyone. And while the community of the ship, her town, had come together and been as kind and as sympathetic as any group of people could be, they could not be what she was. She was singular and alone in an immutable way, and she had settled into that, adapted it to herself. She turned it into a way of being. She had become the quintessential outsider, which in some ways made her the person who saw the most when it came to the community she could never truly feel part of. She saw the discomfort behind the compassion, the muted impatience with the needs of others, the suppressed irritation with the accommodations that simply must be made. At first, This was just with people's reactions to herself and her own annoyingly tragic circumstances. But eventually, it was something she saw everywhere. It was like a layer had been scraped off the skin of the world, and now she and she alone could see what was behind or under all the faces around her. This did not bother her, but it didn't make her closer to anyone either. Finally, she had developed a kind of extroversion as smokescreen technique. When people either stare at you awkwardly, terrified of asking all the questions in their head, or they simply ask you all the questions in their head, the best thing to do is to come right up to them first, give them an opening to ask one question, and then take control. Give them a juicy little package of details that you have already made your peace with sharing with the world, and then move on while they are still satisfied with that. She'd been working the closed tribal circuit of the Contiki in just this way for the better part of a decade, and had succeeded in giving everyone the vague impression that they knew her really well, without ever letting anyone actually know her. Get out and meet the neighbors. But never let the neighbors into your own place. But now, Maxine had new neighbors. And what she didn't know is that they had already come in and put their feet up. Tiny sporangium chambers all around her burst open, releasing microscopic molecules into the air. Molecules that were formed for such specific purposes, so different from the molecules that the organisms around her would have produced if she hadn't been there to change the game, to provide new and complicated stimuli, to be analyzed and reacted to 
decisions had been made about this disruptive presence. It is doubtful that Maxine would have, as she was at that moment, understood a decision-making process so diffuse and abstract as this one, or recognize it as decision-making at all. It had coalesced over such great distances, and from so many different directions, that it would have seemed like the shivers of a hundred unrelated breezes blowing through a hundred unrelated forests. If she could see the way each thing communicated with the other to draw a conclusion, she would have been awestruck and probably terrified. Though she might have been comforted to know that the conclusion it had come to was not murder. Not yet. Chapter 7 Sumner sent Maxine a text. He had been satisfied that she was off doing mysterious Maxine things right up until the moment he saw those empty chess tables. But now, it was beyond denying that there was something weird happening here. As he waited for Maxine to reply, he flipped over to the internal diagnostics feed for ship personnel, then selected an innocuously named menu item, Manifest. Most of the citizens of the Contiki didn't know this existed. It was an obvious enough necessity to be able to track everything, especially the independent and unpredictable things that were contained within a bubble of steel and plastic and glass in a vacuum of instant death. So it may have been one of those unpleasant realities and accompanying set of implications that their minds just filed under better to pretend not to know the way people in the 20th century treated global warming. Regardless, people chose the many gifts of ignorance over the many burdens of paranoia, mainly so they could continue to have sex with people they probably shouldn't. Looking at the manifest now, Sumner saw that it showed just about every single person on the ship in quarters. These people had lived every day of their lives in one another's company, they had never known a world in which every moment of their lives was not shared. They didn't fill the streets of the town every waking hour because they had to. They did it because it was their natural habitat, the only thing they had ever known. Now, every last one of them had decided at the same moment that they needed a little time to themselves? That seemed unlikely, as unlikely as Sumner himself wanting to go back to bed and not go to work, an urge he still felt very strongly. But there were two things pushing past the sludgy pull of his quarters and his blankets. Something weird was happening to his town, and Maxine had not yet returned his text. The manifest did not give him access to the command decks, but if he could see something screwy was going on, then so could they. If they hadn't reached out yet, it was a safe bet that whatever was happening down here was happening up there as well. He'd make his way through the center of town and then over to the starboard command lift, see if he could drag anyone out of their barracks. First, though, he would text Maxine one more time. 
He was just about to close the manifest file when he noticed something. His own position on the ship's schematic was brighter than all the others, and slightly weirdly shaped. He zoomed in on the game center. As he did so, what he had taken to be himself split into two distinct dots. There was someone else in the game center. They were at his 10 o'clock, maybe 20 paces away. Sumner looked up in the direction of the person who should be standing there and saw the wall of the game center and instantly knew what was on the other side. Someone was in one of the VR coffins. Chapter 8 Maxine had been moving at a good clip, sliding down the path, then making her way across a kind of flat lip in the otherwise unbroken slope. Then she came across a spot where things turned rocky. She could see a way down, and at this point she could even hear what she assumed was the stream somewhere below her. She never heard a stream, obviously, but she'd heard running water. And this sounded like a lot of it, and that, she surmised, was probably what a stream sounded like. Though there was something softer, more musical, than the steady rush of all the pressurized water on the ship. But as she contemplated finding a path down the more jagged terrain below her, she suddenly felt the need to sit down. It had already been a day of new landscapes and weird topographies, and she had, once again, found herself coming up against the weird adjustments that someone who grew up in a fully man-made environment had to make for a totally organic world. There were a lot of slight ups and little downs, followed by steep inclines and sudden rises. Plus, a lot more making tiny adjustments to keep your balance and compensate for uneven ground. This felt so foreign that a couple of times it had struck her that it would have been more natural to just teeter over and lie on her side wondering what went wrong. She had a seat on a rock. Upon approach, the stony outcrop had looked like a uniformly reddish stone. But up close, there were subtle veins of purple and pink coursing through them. You had to really look, but once you saw it, you couldn't stop seeing it. They seemed to cut through the rock layers in straight, flat plates until, at seemingly random spots, they would explode into a pattern like stars or loops or like solar flares. Then, as the rock got closer to the soil, Maxine noticed something else. Where the pink and purple veins got closer to the ground, the roots of the surrounding plants had reached out, crawled and stretched to dig their way into those load channels. There was something hungry, desperate, ravenous about the insistent reach of those shoots. Her eyes followed one of the roots back to the plant it was obviously supplying. The brown shoot worked its way back to a veiny, rigid-looking stalk. The parts of the base that hadn't stretched out to the stone were thrust into the soil. 
Above that, the stalk quickly disappeared into a swirl of vines and branches, leaves and buds. This part was so dense that much of it was in permanent shadow. It wasn't until you got to the high side of the tangle, the side getting direct sunlight, that some of the buds were actually open. The flowers were purple, running to blue at the tips of their petals, which were a thick, tight spiral of long, thin shapes that reminded Maxine of fan blades. They were gathered together as if someone had been trying to fill an ice cream cone with as many of them as possible. They had a powdery shimmer to them, as if the light of the sun itself was touching the petals with deliberate delicacy, afraid to bruise them. There must have been a dozen of these flowers, various sizes, all tilted up toward the sky to drink in the midday sun. Then Maxine vomited. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.